please open your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We are going to be talking about church leadership this morning. So, 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible under your chair. It's a brown one. And um, I'm going to probably have our brother Ken shout out page numbers throughout the, the message, but it's on page 839. 839, starting on 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter, or at least the first 13 verses, and then we will pray. If you are visiting with us, I just want to let you know um, right here at the beginning that this is not a typical Sunday morning message. Our typical Sunday morning message is we go through one passage of the Bible, we go straight through in an expository fashion, but we're right now currently in a series on the doctrine of the local church. So to cover this in a few weeks, we have three more weeks in it, we kind of have to be jumping around for the most part. So... um, just, just know that we'd like to stick in one text, but for this week, we will be jumping around, okay? So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an able teacher, Not addicted to wine, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. One who manages his own household competently, having his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, of the faith with a clear conscience. Verse 10, And they must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Women, too, must be worthy of respect, Not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons must be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households competently. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for the faith that is in Christ Jesus that you have given to us. We thank you for saving us and making your people, making us your household making us your church. And we thank you for the gifting and calling of leaders. We pray that you would give us understanding of these things. Lord, this is a very teachy type Sunday. So we ask that your spirit would guide us and that we would really feast on and think about the words we're reading on the pages. Feed our souls, Father, we pray, and change us. And we even pray, Lord, that this would continue to strengthen our church and set us on a trajectory of greater and greater health and love and joy in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are now in full swing of election season to choose our next president of the United States. I'm sure you've heard it in the news over and over, all kinds of different situations in this regard. And the topic of leadership comes to the forefront of our nation's mind because we're choosing our executive leader. 
We want a leader we can trust. We want leaders who get the job done. But we also want leaders who will not abuse their power, but rather use their position and power to serve the people. Now, we're not going to talk about the election more than that. It's just the point that there's leadership and leadership is important and character in leadership is important. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, perhaps you are suspicious of church leaders. You may have heard or personally participated in a church where a leader is caught in a scandal of adultery, embezzlement, fraud, or leading as a bullying dictator in a church. Sadly, there are too many examples of this in churches ever since the churches began in the first century all the way until today. And that causes us, by Satan's design in some ways, to be confused and to focus on the abuse of leadership authority or to focus on being suspicious and distrusting all leadership authority to throw the baby out with the bathwater. One of my greatest influences growing up in my church um, was a youth pastor who ended up disqualifying himself for sexual immorality. And that was a little devastating as a sophomore in high school to think of one of the men who's been investing and teaching me the Bible um, had fallen in such in such a way. This is this touches all Christians sooner or later, sadly, but it does. If not you directly, hopefully, Lord willing, never you. But if it doesn't touch you directly, it will certainly touch you through your Christian friends and family you have. <coughs> Excuse me. And so we want to know what God's design is for leadership because there is such a thing as trustworthy and qualified leaders. I just read to you a, a list of qualifications for a leader. There are abusive parents in the world, but we don't want to throw out parenting altogether and have the state raise children, right? There are abusive police officers, but there are also good police officers, and we shouldn't eliminate the police. There are abusive politicians and corrupt politicians, but there are also good politicians, and we do not want anarchy in our country where there is no government. There are abusive church leaders, but there are also good church leaders, and we shouldn't eliminate the reality of church leadership if the New Testament gives us a model of church leadership. And so the good news today is that God gives leaders to churches according to His grace. Ephesians 4, 7 through 11 talks about God, and we'll, we'll get to that passage a little bit later on when we talk about equipping. But God, Christ Jesus, has purchased us with His blood. He's even purchased leaders and through these leaders, he gives them to the church, apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So the bottom line is this. God leads his local church by giving qualified leaders to your church. So follow God's lead. God is still the ultimate leader. Christ Jesus is the chief pastor. But the chief pastor gives leaders to the church and so you need to follow God's lead as he gives leaders to our local church. So um, we'll start with a question and then we'll talk about the two different leaders. What does church leadership look like in the New Testament? Okay, if we want to be and you know, the, the glory, our claim to fame as Baptists is trying to be biblical, particularly in the issue of the church and baptism. That's why we only baptize believers. We went against all church, or not all, but much church tradition, especially in the time of the Reformation, to say that we will only baptize believers because that's what the Bible taught. And we have been stubbornly, righteously stubborn in holding to what the Bible teaches. So we need to ask, what does the New Testament teach about what church leadership is? So let me read to you a few verses. Philippians 1.1 says this, 
Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including overseers and deacons. What were the leaders there named? Overseers and deacons. If you have a King James Version, it would say bishops and deacons. In Titus 1, verses 5 to 7, if you're in 2 1 Timothy, just turn to your right just a little bit. Um, you go 2 Timothy, and then right after 2 Timothy, you have Titus. Just turn to the right. Titus 1, look at verse 5. It says this. Paul writing to Titus as an apostolic delegate. The reason I left you in Crete, Titus, was to set right what was left undone as I directed you to appoint what? Appoint what? Elders in every town. And then you jump to verse 7, for an overseer, as God's administrator, must be blameless. So they're called elders in verse 5, and what are they called in verse 7? Overseers, or again, if you have a King James Version, bishops. So you have elders and bishops and deacons. And then you get to Ephesians 4.11, I already quoted it to you. God, or Jesus, personally gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So there you have the title of pastor and teacher. Okay, you also have apostles, prophets, and evangelists, which were those three roles were not in the local church per se, but kind of above the local church, going to different churches, doing their work. Okay, so you have th- we have three titles so far for one office, and then we have another title. So we have pastor, elder, overseer, or bishop. And then you have deacon, right? You guys hear that on all these texts? So those are the titles given in the New Testament. But I want to tell you that pastor, elder, and overseer, or bishop, are three titles for one office. It's all the same office. It's actually just three titles. Now let me show that to you from the Bible. Look at 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2. Or you could just listen. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. It says this. Therefore, Peter says, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of the Messiah and also a participant in the glory about to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you. So he's talking to elders. And then he says, pastor God's flock among you or shepherd God's flock. So what is an elder? What are the elders to do? Shepherd or pastor. That's what pastors do. And then you get to and then he says, so he says, pastor God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion but freely. So uh, an elder is to pastor and oversee the flock. Pastor, elder, overseer. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 says this. Paul, this is Paul's last time with the elders as he's leaving the elders at Ephesus. And he says this. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, or this Luke writes about Paul. And Paul called for the elders of the church. Acts 20, verse 17. Now listen to verse 28. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock, he's telling the elders, that the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to pastor the church of God that he purchased with his own blood. So what is the elder called as? An overseer appointed by the Holy Spirit. To do what? To pastor the church of God. So you see, at least in these two texts, and there's others we could go to, but pastor, elder, overseer are all the same office with three different titles. So maybe it has a little bit of a different emphasis given the title. An elder might speak to his character qualification. A shepherd or a pastor might speak to his care for the flock. And an overseer might speak to his management and administration and his oversight direction of where the church goes. Okay? But they're all the same office. 
pastor, elder, overseer. Now, that, you see that here in the New Testament, right? Do you guys see it here in the Bible? Okay, good. But it's not just in the Bible, and this is where our authority is, the Scripture alone, but even in our Baptist faith and message. In the Baptist faith and message, our statement of faith 2000 says, the scriptural officers of the church are pastors and deacons. In the Baptist faith and message 2000. The Baptist faith and message 1925 says, the scriptural officers are bishops or elders and deacons. So even if you just take our Baptist faith and message from 1925, 1963, and 2000, even among our statement of faith, we are saying it's the same thing. Pastors are bishops or overseers, and pastors are elders. And they're all three different titles for the same role. Now now that I pointed that out, I want to go to a, 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 another part of this feature. When, we think, when, we think, when we're thinking about what does church leadership look like in the New Testament, okay, so we have the title, pastor, elder, overseer. But what do we learn about how they functioned in the church? Here's what we learn. We learn that pastor, elder, overseers were always a plurality in the churches. There was always more than one. Let me give you just a few examples. Okay? The only time you see the word elder in the singular is when it's talking about what an elder's qualifications are. An elder must be. But everywhere else, it's in the plural. So listen to Titus 1.5. Titus 1.5 says this. We already read it. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. Not to appoint an elder in every town, but to appoint elders in every town. Acts 14.23. When they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they have believed. That's speaking of Paul and Barnabas. Acts 20 verse 17. Paul called for the elders at Ephesus. James 5.14 says, Is there anyone among you sick in the church? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him, anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. Here's what Benjamin Merkel, pastor at Southeast Southeast Baptist Theological Seminary, he wrote, he's contributing to this book, Baptist Foundations. He writes this, The New Testament evidence indicates that every church had a plurality of elders. There is no example in the New Testament of one elder or pastor leading a congregation as the sole primary leader. Wow. A plurality of elders, I'll continue the quote, a plurality of elders were at the churches in Jerusalem, Acts 11.30, Antioch of Pisidia, Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe, Acts 14.23, Ephesus, Acts 20.17, 1 Timothy 5.17, Philippi, Philippians 1.1, the cities of Crete, Titus 1.5, the dispersion of which James wrote, James 1.1, the Roman provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 1 Peter 1.1, and possibly the churches or church to which Hebrews was written, Hebrews 13.17. Wow. Every New Testament church you see, there are a plurality of pastor, elder, overseers. Now, there are benefits to this. What would be the benefits of having more than one pastor, elder, overseer? Now, I'm not talking about they all have to be on staff. I'm not talking about the church has to be rich and be able to provide for all of them. I don't think all the New Testament churches had full-time staff, elders, pastors, overseers. But what's the benefit of having more than one? Are there benefits to it? Or did God just kind of mess up and make it a plurality? There are some benefits here. Let me read to you a few that I've got from my reading here. There's built-in accountability. Now, the pastors are accountable to every member of the church. Every member is accountable to every member of the church. But when you're having pastor, elder, overseer meetings regularly, 
you're built in with accountability. Right now, Jim, Al, Jim and Al are our deacons. It's good to see Al. I saw Al this morning. Is Al still here? Oh, there he is. Good to see you, brother. Um, yeah, so we have our meetings. We try to have a meeting once a month and or once a week. And we don't just talk about the church. We talk about our souls. And we share a prayer request for our soul. We're trying to build in accountability just as part of the church, uh, as, as leaders in the church. Not only is there a benefit there, it eliminates blind spots in theology and ministry. Every pastor, elder has blind spots. But if you have more, then they could cover the other blind spots. It enables pastor elders to feed off each other's passion and courage. Sometimes one pastor elder is discouraged and three are encouraged. Sometimes two are discouraged and three are encouraged. And they get to pick each other up. So that the leadership doesn't ebb and flow on the encouragement or discouragement of one man. It ena- then another one is it enables various gifts and leadership styles of different men to be used for the health of the church body. It also helps in sharing the ministry burden. Caring for the church is often too much for one man to handle and can lead to frustration and burnout, Benjamin Merkel writes. And that's true. You know, some pa- the average stint of a pastor at a church is three years. Three years. Why? Because if it's all on you and you have all the pressure and the, the joys and the pains and the encouragements and the criticisms and you get all that on your shoulders week after week after week, you could get crushed. And so, But having a plurality, the encouragement doesn't puff you up too much because it's not just about you. And, and when you have discouragement or complaints and, and criticisms that are unfounded, then you have a team that gets to receive it together. And it's not solo. Now, I just want to confess here, I don't feel like I'm solo here. Um, you know, Jim and Al and I, we meet regularly and we try to bear the burden together. But, but still, if I, and I have to do that. You know, I don't want it to be all on me in one sense because it's just not going to be healthy for you or for me or for my wife especially. Um, lastly, though, if you have a plurality of pastor elders, it communicates clearly that all members should pursue mature character required of pastor elders. It's not just for the guys with the seminary degrees. When you don't have a plurality, you know what you think, what the churches think a pastor is? Someone who has a seminary degree. I could tell you as a graduate from a seminary that there are men in seminary who shouldn't be in seminary. And there are men who should be pastors who, who've never been to seminary. I'm not saying seminary is a bad thing. I'm actually going back to school this summer for a, another degree. But the point is, a seminary degree doesn't make you a pastor. Okay, And so having a plurality proves that to the church. Until If you only have pastor elders who have seminary degrees, then every member thinks, I could never be a pastor elder, and I should never even strive to be because I don't have a seminary degree. That's miscommunication, right? Okay, so we have two types of leaders, pastor, elder, overseers, and deacons. Let's think about these one at a time. We'll spend most of our time on pastor, elder, overseers because the qualifications overlap. Then we'll think about deacons just before we close, okay? So, point number one, God gives his church pastor, elder, overseers as a gift to his church. Okay? That's point number one. God gives to your church, to churches, his local churches, pastor, elder, overseers as gifts. So with this, let's ask two questions. What are the qualifications and what are the duties? Okay? What are the qualifications of a pastor, elder, overseer and what are the duties? Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Okay? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says this, saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble task. So first of all, I'm just going to go through this and just talk about these qualifications, okay? We'll kind of do a machine gun approach here. Oh, let me say one more thing, by the way, before I jump into this. You're saying, PJ, I'm not a pastor, elder, overseer. This is not for me. 
That's baloney. This is for you for two reasons. One, you have to affirm and appoint pastor, elder, overseers as a church. As a pastor, you don't say, I don't just say, this guy should be a pastor, elder, overseer. Tough, just deal with it because PJ said so. That's not how it works. Who appoints or who affirms? Who has to confirm a pastor, elder, overseer? The congregation does. So you need to know this because you're the ones who are in charge of holding me accountable and future pastor, elder, overseers accountable. But number two, all the qualifications on this list, guess what? It's required of every Christian. So let's just use this as a time to convict our own hearts of sin. Let's get a little knife, a spiritual knife, and let's start pricking our hearts, okay? And let's just start saying, oh, ow, Lord, forgive me for that. Help me grow, okay? So let's do that as we go through this list. After the first one, then we'll get to convicting everyone. The first qualification here is he needs to aspire to be an overseer. In other words, if someone is going to be a pastor elder, I'll just say pastor elder. Uh, someone's going to be a pastor elder, he needs to have a desire for it. He has to be eager and enthusiastic because it gets hard and discouraging at times. Plus, if you become a teacher, you have a stricter what? Judgment, James chapter 3. Not only that, Hebrews 13, 17, you have to give an account to God for your pastor, elder, overseer ministry. For however long you served as that. Every member of the church, you have to give an account to God. If you don't want this, don't take it, right? Who wants it? It's not, it's not I mean, I think there's, a, there's great privilege and blessing. And I'm a happy pastor. But there's great fear as well and, and, and trepidation at entering into this task. So you have to desire it. And you know what? There are men who are qualified in character to be pastor elders, but they don't want to be. And it's not a sin. They might say, you know, I like sharing the gospel with my neighborhood and I don't want to get tied back with overseeing the church. I want to just be a faithful member and reach out to my neighbors. Hey, praise the Lord for that. Right? Not everyone has to want to do this, but everyone who does this has to want it. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go to some of these other characteristics. Uh, verse 2, an overseer, therefore, must be above what? Above reproach. That means blameless. Ben Merkel writes, the overarching qualification here is referring to godliness. Being free from blemishes and character of character or conduct. This doesn't mean sinlessness. This means that there is no glaring moral weakness. Okay, no glaring moral weakness. There is moral weakness every time we sin, and we're all sinners. Outsiders can't point their finger at them or discredit their profession of faith as their faith of being faithful followers of Christ. This, by the way, all this applies to deacons as well. All these, um, or most of them, except for one. Okay, not only that, what's the next one in verse 2? The husband of how many, how many wives? Wife. One wife, right. Check. Good. Okay, one wife, that means that he has to be faithful to his wife. A one-woman man. It's not saying that he must be married, and if you're not married, you can't be a pastor elder. It's not even saying that he can't legitimately remarry if, let's say, his wife died. There must be no, but here's the point, there must be no other woman he relates to intimately, whether emotionally or physically. This includes purity against pornography for pastor elders. Now, obviously, pastors will relate to women in the church because he has to pastor them. So there's going to be a spiritual connection there, and there's going to be friendship. That's, but that's part of pastoring. There's also dangers there, but that's just where accountability and growth comes in. But there's going to be no inappropriate emotional or physical connection. Now, not only that, a pastor elder must be self-controlled. That means mental sobriety. 
He needs to think clearly about spiritual matters. He has to be balanced in his judgment. He needs to have a cool head in making decisions. He needs to be mentally and emotionally stable in the midst of the pressures of ministry because it is a pressure cooker. Not only self-controlled, we go on in verse 2, sensible. So they must be disciplined in exercising good judgment. They must have self-discipline over aspects of life, including their physical desires, fighting temptations of lust, anger, laziness, and other ungodly traits. Next, what does it say? Respectable, a life worth following. Well-balanced and virtuous. Hospitable. This means a pastor, elder, pastor elders must have a life that's open to the congregation and open to non-Christians. Making time to build relationships with other people. An open home, especially towards strangers and unbelievers. The word hospitable, hospitable means lover of strangers, literally. So they must have, in other words, pastors must be evangelistic. They must have an open home where they get to know their neighbors and neighbors are in their home. Non-Christians are in their home. Also church members, of course, yes. But the word is actually dealing with non-Christians. Okay? What else? Going on in verse, we're still on verse 2. An able teacher. Titus 1.9 continues with saying, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. So a pastor, elder must know the word. He must know sound doctrine. We have a Baptist faith and message. He must know that or his own church's statement of faith and he must be able to defend it and refute those who contradict it. And he has to be able to teach. That's the difference between a pastor and an elder and a deacon, by the way. Deacons can teach, but they don't have to teach. Pastor elders have to teach. And it's not necessarily just um, behind the pulpit. Let's go on. Not addicted to wine. That means he's not addicted. He's, he doesn't abuse alcohol. He doesn't drink it too much or too often. Now, the scriptures don't require abstinence, though it does warn against the dangers of alcohol. I mean, in 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul tells, if you just go two chapters down, and you get to Paul, he says, don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. So there, even in this, where he said, don't be addicted to wine, but yet you need to drink a little bit of wine for your stomach in, in that situation. Now, you got to be careful here. You know, some people want to say, oh, see, you could drink, and then they want to use that to just drive a truck through it, right? That's not the point, okay? Now, I understand the legalism on the other side where you make rules that the Bible doesn't say, that's not true either. You can't just say drinking is always a sin. But you can't just use that to make it a license to just be as loose as you can as well. And just how close can I get to the line without crossing it? That's the wrong attitude. It's the wrong attitude. And an elder should never have that attitude, pastor elder. Okay, not addicted to wine. Not a bully, but gentle. What is a bully? What is a bully in, in churches? What, what is a pastor elder who might be a bully? A bully is, is someone who's easily irritated and has a bad temper. Ben Merkel writes, such a person is ready to fight rather than to calmly talk through a difficult situation. A violent man uses verbal and sometimes physical force to those who anger him. But a pastor elder is not to be overbearing. He's to be patient with others, especially when they've done wrong, because they will do wrong. They don't retaliate or return evil for evil. At the same time, look at the next qualification there. A pastor elder, and this, again, all of this should be all of us, right? Not just pastor elders. It doesn't mean you get to be drunk with wine because you're not a pastor, right? We all, have to, we all have to grow in these things. Next one here is not quarrelsome. The opposite, this is the op quarrelsomeness is the opposite of gentleness and peace. He shouldn't be constantly quarreling in the church 
over whatever they don't like or prefer. Pastor elders must not be pushy about their way. A pastor elder must be able to address the tensions in the church without adding to them. He must be a peacemaker, finding ways to bring reconciliation and repentance without being a peace faker who runs from necessary conflict. There's a difference between being a peacemaker and a peace faker. A peace faker doesn't want to confront sin. Pastor elders must confront sin or else they're not going to be shepherding the flock. And yet at the same time, they must... So they, they can't be peace fakers who just try to make it look peaceful on the surface, but they sweep under the rug all the things that need to be dealt with. Yet at the same time, he must not be quarrelsome. There's that balance. Don't be quarrelsome, but don't be passive. Deal with the sin in the church. Not greedy. Pastor elders must not be greedy. They must not have a love for money and earthly gain. There must be financial cr- controls in the church with checks and balances to guard against embezzlement and fraud. And, and uh, you know, uh, you know when, the art, when the church here interviewed me, they asked for a background check and they asked for a check on my credit. That's great. You know, you need to do that. How is, how is he handling money? And, and is he greedy for money? What does his budget look like? Okay, not greedy. Next, verse 4. One who manages his own household competently, having his children under control with all dignity. So he must not be a heavy-handed parent, not an authoritarian. He must treat his children with dignity so his children grow up with dignity. A godly dad doesn't crush the spirit of his children. He doesn't force them into submission with harsh discipline. He relates to them with respect and seeks to win their hearts. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Verse 6, he must not be a new convert. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, verse 5. Why does he need to manage his own household well? If he can't manage his own household well, how will he manage the what? The church, right? The household of God. How they treat their wives, how a husband treats his wife, and how he parents his kids will always reflect in the way he leads the church. You can't change it. You can try to change it. You can try to say, well, I'm in church mode and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a better leader when I'm at church. No, you're not. You're exactly the same person you were at home. You can't change it. Who you are at home is who you are. And so if you can't lead at home, you can't lead in the church. Period. Moving on to verse 6, he must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Why did the devil fall? What was the devil's sin? The sin of what? Pride, right? High position and pride. And now if you, if you take a new convert and you just put him up as a pastor elder, a new convert doesn't truly get his own weaknesses, the nature of temptation and indwelling sin, the power of repentance, the freedom of repentance. Man, repentance is such a good gift. We're going to talk about that tonight. And how the devil seeks to devour him. New converts don't get that yet. And so don't put them up too quickly. Verse 7. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he doesn't fall into the trap of the devil. So have a good reputation with outsiders. If you go to Titus 1.5 or Titus 1.7, let's just a few more. He must not be arrogant. What does an arrogant man in the church look like? Or an arrogant one? What, do, what, does, what does it look like when we're arrogant? An arrogant person is self-willed constantly insisting that things be done his way or her way. That's the opposite of gentleness. The, the arrogant person is inconsiderate of people's opinions and feelings and attempts to get what he wants regardless of the cost to others. That's arrogance. The pastor elder must not be arrogant. He must not be hot-tempered, it says in Titus 1. That means he should be slow to anger, not easily angered or unable to control his anger, not lashing out at others but displaying self-control and patience. 
He must be able to deal with difficult and emotionally charged situations that arise in his personal life and in the church because guess what? There will be emotionally charged situations in the church. He needs to have a cool head, not hot-tempered. Our leaders need to not be hot-tempered. Next, loving what is good, willingly helping others to seek their good and joy in God. A pastor elder must be righteous in Titus 1. That means an unswerving commitment to obey God no matter what, even when no one is looking. He must be holy. That means he's wholly devoted to God and his word. He's dedicated to glorifying God. And in one sense, this man doesn't care what other people think. In a sense. As long as he knows he's obeying God and not sinning, in a sense, he doesn't care what other people think. He only cares about when he's sinning against God and against people. So what's the application for us? Okay, so there's a long list of, you know, and all of us, by the way, other than the teaching part, Right? Other than that, you have to do this. You all of us have to grow in all of these characteristics because this is a picture of mature Christianity. So what is a pastor elder? How do you know when you find a pastor elder? Not a seminary degree, not a giftedness to teach, but what? Character. Mature, godly, repentant, holy character. That's the qualification for a pastor elder. So, Christian, aspire to these character traits. When I pray through our members list, sometimes I'll just pray for the men and I'll just say, or for the women, I'll just say, God, make them qualified as a pastor elder in their character. Regardless if they ever become one, just make them qualified in it. That's a great prayer. You know, one of the the rules of thumb for me with knowing if I found another pastor elder in the church is this. If If I got cancer diagnosed today and they said, PJ, you have two weeks to live, I'm going to look at my son who's nine years old, and I want to say to him, Rock, I'm going to die. Two weeks, most likely. But the other pastor elders in our church, model your life after them because I'm not here to be the dad that you need. That's kind of my rule of thumb. If I can't look at a man and say, son, be like that guy if I leave, then that kind of, I don't, there's something that's not lining up here with the 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Okay, so that's what the application to us individuals. Let's pursue these character qualifications. As a church, what do we need to do? Hold me accountable to this. Hold Jim and Al. We're going to get to their qualifications briefly. Hold us accountable. Look for these qualifications in men. Encourage them in people. And let's pray. Let's make this a regular prayer request in our church. That God would raise up men, and even women, because there's deaconesses here. That God would raise up men and women who fit these qualifications. That these are not like... These are not like diamonds in the rough, but more like dime a dozen people in the church. You just got a church filled with these men and women. Some of them don't desire to be a pastor elder, but they fit the qualifications. Wouldn't that be sweet, right? That's what a healthy church looks like. If you're not a Christian, let me just say something briefly to you. You know, the hypocrisy you see in our leaders in our churches is either coming from them not being qualified and not following this, or secondly, it's coming from a, a pastor elder not continuing to repent and trust in Jesus so he becomes disqualified or you're just seeing a pastor elder and you've seen him in a sin and he's not necessarily disqualified but you're actually everyone sins and he's caught in a sin in that moment of whatever okay but wouldn't you as a non-christian wouldn't you want to have selfless sacrificial men serving you and serving your soul that would you isn't that a gift to have these kind of men god gives these so that men and women would flourish in their walk with God. God leads his local church by giving qualified leaders to the church. So let's follow God's lead. Now, what do pastor elders do? 
I preached a whole sermon on this a few um, months ago, so I'm not going to go in depth here. Let me just say it. Let me give you five things a pastor elder does. Pray. In Acts 6.4, it says that, you know, we're going to appoint seven men to serve tables. We will devote ourselves to what? Do you know? Devote ourselves to the what? To the ministry of? The ministry of the word and what? Prayer. Right? Acts 6.4. The ministry of the word and prayer. So what does a pastor elder do? He prays for the church. So guess what, church members? Share prayer requests with your pastors and leaders so they can pray for you. That's their job. Secondly, they preach or they teach, Acts 6.4. They devote themselves to the ministry of the word. So what should you do? Hear the word of God taught. Test what they're saying by the scriptures. Discuss what's preached with one another. Share your questions, even your disagreements with the preaching. Be active listeners and not passive listeners. Now, pastor elders don't need to be able to preach behind a pulpit. They could do one-on-one discipleship. They can lead a small group. They could teach a Sunday school class. But they have to have some ministry of the word in their lives. And praise God that there are men in our church who have a ministry of the word. But a pastor elder must have a ministry of the word. Third, so pray, preach. Third, oversee. By the way, this spells poem with two P's, P-P-O-E-M. So pray, preach, oversee. And what does that mean? And that's from, you know, he's an overseer. And I have some verses here, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to say that a pastor, he, he leads the direction of the church. Not with a heavy hand. I don't just say, hey, church, we're going this way. I'll say, let's have a business meeting, and I have a recommendation for the church. Here's the church covenant. Let's talk about it. Let's pray about it. Let's think about it. But that's oversight to say, I think the next step for our church's health is to get a church covenant. Or to readopt an updated church covenant. I think the next step for our church health is to clean our membership role. Now you might say, no, we won't do that. Okay, then I'll just keep overseeing and try to lead the church to health. But a pastor elder oversees and says, he's looking over and he's saying, oh, let's not go that way. There's a ditch there, flock. If we go over there, we're going to fall into a ditch and there's no grass over there. The grass is over this way, so let's go this way. That's what, that's what oversight is. He's looking over and seeing ahead, where is the flourishing and health at? And where is the dangers at for the church? So what should we do as Christians? Christians, members of this church, let your pastors lead with joy. Don't hide where you're at. Share where you're at so they can oversee you. And follow their biblical leadership and direction. Test it by the Spirit and by the Scriptures. Hear the word carefully. But consider what they're saying. And consider the biblical reasons for their direction. So that's pray, preach, oversee, equip now. Ephesians 4. Turn to Ephesians 4. Turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 11. What is a pastor elder supposed to do? <coughs> so it says in verse 11 that he's given some pastors to the churches and teachers. For what in verse 12? For what? Anyone in Ephesians 4.12? For the what of the saints? Equipping of the saints. A pastor is to equip members and the church as a whole to do the work of the what? In verse 12. Equipping of the saints for the work of the? Of the building up of the body. If you go to verse 15, what, does the members have to, what do the members have to do to each other? Verse 15, speak the what? Truth in what? In love so that the church grows. So what does the pastor do? He equips the saints... To be able to speak the truth in love. 
To be able to gospelize, to be able to rebuke, to be able to teach, to be able to correct, to be able to train other people in righteousness, to evangelize the lost, to encourage the discouraged, to rebuke the wayward. That's the ministry of the body speaking the truth in love, not the pastors. The pastors are equipping the church to speak the truth in love. And when you have a church filled with members who speak the truth in love, they're not harsh with the truth, but they're not so lovey-dovey that they don't speak the truth. They speak the truth in love. You get members like that, and you got a healthy church that's growing and building up because they're focusing on Christ in conversations again and again and again. Now, why must a pastor do this? Ephesians 4, verse 7. Now, grace was given to each one of us. That's a gift was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. Every Christian has a gift. Verse 8. For it says, when Jesus ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity and gave gifts to people. Okay, let's think about that for a second. When did Jesus ascend? After his what? After his resurrection. Forty days after his resurrection, he ascended on a Thursday on high. But when he ascended on high, he took what? Prisoners into captivity. So he grabbed prisoners, he took them with him, and he gave gifts to who? To men or to people. And then verse 9 explains. But when what, what does he ascended mean? It means he went to heaven. What does that mean? Except that he descended first to the lower parts of the earth. Before Jesus could ascend to heaven, he first came down and became a what? A man, right? He became a man. The incarnation, Christmas. God the Son came down and became a man to identify with us. And then verse 10. And the one who descended is also the one who what? Ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. So Jesus came down. He became a man. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our what? Sins. And he rose from the dead, victorious over sin, Satan, and death. And then he, he unites us to him. That's what Ephesians 2 says. We were dead in him. We were, we were dead in our sins. And he raised us together with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places. So when Christ rose from the dead, who rose from the dead? We did. And when Christ ascended, who ascended with him? We did. And what did he do? Then he, he gives gifts to the churches. Every member of a church is a gift. And then the pastors are given as another gift to equip the other gifts to do their gifting ministry. So without the cross, there are no giftedness. There are no church members. Without the cross, there are no gifts that we have to serve others. Without the cross, there are no pastors to equip the saints. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, that gives us church members and gives us church pastors to equip the saints with the gospel so that we grow in loving the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian here this morning, let me just say to you briefly, this is a lot of this is a heavily Christian message. But if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, let me just say to you, this is what God's telling you to do. He's telling you that you, like all of us here, are sinners. And we all deserve hell for our sins. And we're all actually on our way to hell. But God sent His Son who descended and became a man. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. And he ascended back up into heaven. And if you would repent from your sins. And trust in Jesus Christ. Then you too have ascended with him. And you will have eternal life and forgiveness. And you'll also be given a place in God's church family. To grow with them. To bless them and to be blessed by them. All the days of your life. Until you go to meet King Jesus. So if you're not a Christian. I just plead with you. Repent from your sins. And trust in Jesus Christ. God leads his local church by giving qualified leaders to the church. So we need to follow God's lead. Now I got 
a minute and a half here on my timer for deacons. Let me just say one of the qualifications for deacons that also applies to elders here is not double-tongued. It says in 1 Timothy 3.8. What does that mean? That, he, that a, a, a pastor, elder, and a deacon is not two-faced. They don't say one thing to one person and one thing to a different thing to another person. They're not two-faced. They're not double-tongued. They're sincere. They're people of integrity. They're not hypocritical. Okay. Now, the other qualifications are largely, except for the teaching one, you don't have to be able to teach to be a deacon. You have to be able to teach, and you must be teaching, to be a pastor, elder, overseer. Those are the qualifications for elders and deacons, okay? That's what you're looking for in Jim and Al. You need to look for that in other men, and I would even argue eventually other women in the church. Okay, we want to raise up and cultivate this kind of culture and these kinds of people. This is our goal as mature Christians. We all want to mature. We don't want to stay baby Christians forever, right? We don't want to be dominated by these sins listed here. Now, what are the duties of deacons? Just briefly. Now, this is the... I had a nice P-O-E-M for pastor elders. For deacons, I don't have anything nice. And it's not because... It's just because it's really hard. Because the Bible is very unclear, in a sense, on what a deacon is to do. So what are deacons supposed to do according to the Bible? Here's what deacons are supposed to do according to the Bible. They do whatever they can to free up the pastor elders to prayerfully preach, oversee, equip, and equip the saints. That's what they do. So remember Acts 6, 1 through 4. Now, this is a prototype deacon with prototype elders. The apostles are there ministering to the church, and there's a fight in the church because the Greek-speaking women and the Hebrew-speaking women are fighting over the food, and one of them is being neglected. One of the groups is being neglected. So the pastor elders or the apostles say, hey, if we stop preaching to solve this problem, we're going to cut off the lifeblood of the church because the ministry of the word and prayer is the lifeblood of the church. But this is an important issue. Let's appoint seven godly men to handle the issue. So we could focus on what we need to focus on. And that is kind of the birth or prototype of what a deacon is. They do whatever it takes to free up the pastor elders to do the prayerful preaching, overseeing, and equipping of the saints. So what does that mean? It could mean benevolence ministry. That's a big one. That's what it was in Acts 6. Benevolence ministry. Meeting needs of members in the church and outside the church. Overseeing the benevolence fund. Um, Deacons like pastors. I didn't give you the M for pastors. It's model mature Christianity. Deacons are to be models of mature Christianity as are pastor elders. Here's what Ben Merkel says again in this book, Baptist Foundations. He says, what are some duties deacons might be responsible for today? Basically, they could be responsible for any item not related to teaching or ruling the church, such as facilities, benevolence, finances, ushering, and other matters related to practical logistics of operating a church. Whereas elders are charged with teaching and ruling or leading the church, deacons are given a more service-oriented function. That is, they take care of matters related to the physical and temporal concerns of the church. That's what the New Testament teaches as far as what pastor elders are are to do and what deacons are to do. Again, the point is God leads the church. God gives qualified leaders to a local church. So we need to follow God's lead in our church. Now, you might say, well, where does the congregation fit in? Pastor elders can't be popes, right? And you're right, they can't be. They're not dictators. How do you hold them in check? How how are decisions finally made in the church? Is it the pastors and elders? Is it elder rule? I'm saying no. Is it pastor, elder, and deacon rule? No. What is it? It's pastor, elder, leadership in a plurality with deacons helping them 
with a congregational church government. Next week, we're going to talk about what is the role of the congregation in making decisions. We'll talk about congregationalism next Sunday. Two or three more weeks on this, and then we'll go back to the book of Mark, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that Jesus is our chief pastor and that he's our leader. We thank you that you don't tolerate or approve of disqualified men and women in leadership. Well, men and women as deacons and deaconesses, and then pastor elders in leadership, in oversight. Lord, we see a lot of hypocrisy in our own lives. We read this list and we're convicted of sin in our own hearts. We want to look again at the cross of Christ and ask you to forgive us of our sins. Arrogance, pride, double-tongued, hypocrisy, being quick to anger, not being hospitable to our neighbors, not being blameless, self-controlled, sensible. Forgive us, Father, and grow us as we keep looking at Christ and repenting from sin and trusting in Jesus. Grow us as mature, godly Christians. Not with self-righteousness looking down on other sins, but being so overwhelmed by grace that we want to channel grace to others. And Father, we pray as a church right now that you would raise up many pastor elders in our church and many more deacons and deaconesses in the future. Maybe not this year, maybe this year, but maybe next year, maybe two years from now, three years from now, as we keep thinking about your word and thinking about how it applies to our church and our church members. Help us, Lord, raise us up. Raise up pastor elders here and add new members to the church who can be pastor elders and who can be deacons and deaconesses to keep helping and and serving us as we pursue being a healthy church where everyone encounters Jesus in everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.